0: I think every team will also change within their team based on the riders they have and like the budget they have and what they're what they're going after. I mean, it's kind of like basketball too, right? Um, or like any draft-based sport. Of like, if you haven't had the best season and you have early-round draft picks, you're you're shooting on you're like going for talent. Um, if you're one of the best teams in the league, you're trying to optimize the team you have
1: hello hello this is the training edge podcast and i'm your host isaiah newkirk This is season two, so our theme is chatting with coaches to see how they help their athletes unlock their edge. This episode, I chatted with World Tour team EF Education First performance manager, Nate Wilson. With working for a World Tour team, Nate has a good insight into what the top level of the sport is doing within training. So my goal was to discuss how this could translate down the line to other levels in sport. We discussed developing pro tour riders, spotting talent, what a Pro Tour team camp looks like, and even how he believes the Tour de France is going for their team. But before we dive into this episode, I have a favor to ask of you. If you can go ahead and give this podcast a review or rating. This both helps me to see what you guys think, but also allows this podcast to grow. Thanks. Now, on to today's episode. Enjoy my chat with Nate Wilson. All right, we're back today. I have the pleasure of being joined by Nate Wilson. Nate is the performance manager for EF Education First World Tour team and also the owner of his own coaching company, Catalyst Coaching. Nate, welcome, and how are you doing?
0: Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm doing well, so thanks for having me on.
1: You are welcome. Um, So you recently moved over to Europe. How has that transition been? We kind of talked about this. little bit before I press record but yeah like how's the transition what's the biggest difference
0: yeah it's been good I mean in some ways the transition's been small because I've spent quite a bit of time in Europe for work uh over the past four or five years so it's it wasn't like a huge culture shock in the sense of I didn't know what I was getting into or something Uh, but at the same time it's our first time proper living in uh outside of the U.S. and I've brought my wife over and it's her first time living more than an hour away from her family. So there's just yeah. been a lot of, some of it's been European culture shock, but some of it's also just, you know, it's our first time living away from family and stuff like that. So some of the normal sort of ebbs and flows that go with that. But I mean, considering the year it's been, I think we've actually settled in relatively smoothly. Good. Um, yeah.
1: Did you do you, uh, how was the lockdown in your area um at the yeah time.
0: we had a pretty intense lockdown i think it was um I'm trying to think how long it was i just honestly like didn't keep track of time but we had a lockdown where we weren't allowed we were only allowed to go outside for groceries or medical services um we weren't allowed to go out to exercise and we weren't even allowed to go out to groceries together or something um so it was like pretty it was a pretty strict lockdown um i think it was 10 weeks or something like that um the catch was that like they were kind of updating it every two weeks at a time so i more or less just zoned out and got into like a routine of what that life was and didn't really pay attention to how long it was and um, it was an interesting experience. I mean, I've never done anything like that in my life before. Um, uh, but I actually many have. I kind of had a good time with it, which I, I feel a little bit like maybe that's not a good thing to say. But um, interesting. Why? We, we'd had so much. Uh, we had we'd had so much kind of chaos moving over here and just like getting set up, and I was just like so tired that <laughs> having kind of this like forced not leaving your house break. and yeah. just like break <laughs> and like yeah. reading and this and that whilst not having, like we were super lucky in the sense of like my job security never really got threatened. Right. Uh, we had good health. Our family had good health. So like at the simplest thing, it was just kind of relaxing. Hmm.
1: Did you have, like you are a fairly active dude still. How, like what did you do for exercise during that time?
0: Yeah, I played around with a few different things. I mean, there's a, well, we had a trainer, so like I, okay. I did, I did ride the trainer a decent amount. Um, like that was kind of fun, and I got on. I I had never ridden Swift before, and so oh, I got God. on Swift. So I kind of like got into the whole Swift thing. But I actually, this is bad. I, I rode Swift like every day for eight weeks, and I never did a Swift race. Um, I kept saying, I kept being like, oh, tomorrow I think I'll do a Swift race and then i just wouldn't do it it kind of like reinforced what i already know about myself that like i actually just love like structured training like yep. even when i wasn't training for anything i just was like well oh, i'm just gonna i'm gonna do these workouts and they're gonna build it in this way and like i just never did a Zwift race or anything so i did, I did the zwift stuff and then Ali was doing like we would do like youtube workouts and stuff that uh were tough and yeah we had a friend give us some kettlebells so cool I, yeah it was I mean the days honestly went by really relatively quickly um do
1: you, do you feel like you're working more during that time just because of everything just getting turned upside down
0: I do feel like I was working a fair amount at first there was a period where it slowed down but I mean there was a lot of just like spending time on the phone talking with athletes and sort of like being there for someone, whether it was like a day where they just wanted to talk because it was boring or it was like, well, this is completely unexpected. We spent the past four months kind of like building or training with this vision in our heads. Now, clearly that's not going to happen. So like, what do we do from here? You know, so there was plenty of time that I guess you could classify as work and I also kind of tried to like seize the moment to spend a little bit more time exploring things that maybe like in a normal work week I don't really have time to explore like hmm. training softwares that I'm not as familiar with, um, or just like reading a little bit more of the scientific research that maybe I've gotten behind on. So
1: cool, it, it was like cool. progressing yourself. That's that's cool.
0: Yeah, yeah, I tried to. I tried to do at least one thing that progressed myself as, as it relates to coaching every day.
1: Oh, nice. So I was, I had this a little bit farther down. um, But yeah. What, what was it like during coaching for you during COVID? I think all coaches were pushed during this time.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I would definitely say I was pushed because I like, i wouldn't say i second-guessed myself on a daily basis but i changed my mind at least on a weekly basis i think largely because like when things first started locking down it wasn't clear how long like i feel like when it first locked down at least i had the belief that like oh okay we're doing this for a couple weeks and then like uh racing i guess we'll miss a bit of the spring racing and then it'll resume in may or something you know so like I just went through a few different iterations of, like, uh, do we Do we just use this as an opportunity to put in a training block, to, oh, you should take a recovery because it's going to be a while, to, oh, okay, now it's, like, more or less December. Um, so, yeah, I went through a few different iterations, but also everyone was in a different place because, like, I have athletes that were here in Spain where they were fully locked down and, like, they're only riding they could do on the trainer. And then I have athletes in the U.S. where they could ride outside the whole time, more or less as normal, albeit alone. Um, So, yeah, I feel like I did a lot of just pivoting, I guess. Yeah, same. Because I'm a big believer in having a plan and being like, well, like, athletes do hard work, and so, like, we owe it to them to give them, like, kind of a reference point of what their hard work is building to. And so, but like, you can't, that sort of necessitates having a little bit of a longer term vision at some point. And so I just went through a few different versions of that, where like, at one point it was getting ready for June, and then eventually I more or less arrived at the conclusion of like, let's more, let's have two priorities that are like, doing work that we think just improves you long term, kind of regardless of when our next event is going to be, and two... like enjoying yourself and being happy and being healthy. So I guess that's kind of where I landed at, but it felt like it took me like several pivots to ultimately land there.
1: Yeah, I'm the exact same way. I felt like almost every month I was being like, all right, well, this is going to be the new approach or this is going to be the new approach. And um, I, I think that it seems like almost everyone went through that where originally it was, all right, well, let's give this some time. And then every time it was okay. We need to give this more time, um, and how to make the most of it. All right. So just switch the page a little bit and and talk about your role and what you do for EF Education First. Um, your title, I believe, is Performance Manager. Uh, but what does that mean, and what do you do for the team?
0: Yeah, um, I think that dif- I think Performance Manager is probably a relatively common title in different World Tour teams. But mm-hmm. my guess is also that. Different teams have slightly different duties within that title. Um, at EF, I kind of have three main duties, I guess I would say. One is to be a coach or a trainer directly for a few athletes. Um, the second is to organize training camps for the team. So we'll do camps in different places, whether it's an altitude camp or just to go somewhere warmer in the winter or whatever, uh, or to prepare for a specific race. Sometimes You know, it it can be 20 people or 30 people, almost the whole team. And sometimes we're taking really small groups of six to eight and doing a five, six day camp somewhere. Um, But I'll be responsible for organizing those and being on the ground at the camp, kind of being the coach at the camp. Um, And then also, my third duty would be being based in Girona and being kind of like, I think of it in my head as like a field coach because like a lot of these athletes have their own coach uh that might write their training and training peaks or whatever but then I can be there to help them execute it on a higher level than they might be able to just alone whether that's with motor pacing or nutritional help or for example yesterday I took an athlete out and we did a full time trial simulation with the race wheels the helmet the radio the nutrition protocol we want to execute on race day um, and just helping facilitate some of that stuff that actually can end up making a big difference down the road.
1: Very cool. So I was hoping actually to talk about all those different duties that you have. Um, so I guess like to start with the coaching side, um, so training athletes and coaching on I guess the top level of the sport. What would you say is the I guess biggest difference between coaching the top level? and then coaching, um, I guess more on the elite side or like the first tier pro, um, do you have like a different approach that you do with those?
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it depends. I mean, I think it depends what athletes you're working with at the top tier level, because if you're working with athletes that are maybe some of the five or 10 best riders in the team, in some ways, I think it's more similar to some of the cat ones or like, domestic professionals that are some of their best riders in the team or whatever. Um, Whereas if you're working with guys that are just like pretty middle of the team pros and their job is really to be a worker, um, I think one of the biggest things is actually you really try not to specialize too much. You try and build to a fitness that's robust and consistent and reliable because programs change a lot. And like the best, some of the best, most valuable riders can be riders that are riders that the team feels like they can call upon two days before a race, a race that they didn't know about that they would be doing and bring them to the race and they'll add value to the team. So like to train to be ready for that is a little bit different than to say what I think a lot of times we have the almost luxury of working towards with more amateur athletes where they pick their own schedule and they decide these are the most important races to me and I'm gonna build for them and you really kinda have these clear targets so in some ways that's actually a big difference is that like in some ways we try and specialize a little bit less I would say and just be really well equipped and be at a and build fitness in a way that it's gonna be sustainable I mean now everyone's human and everyone's going to be better at certain things and get tired at certain points so i don't think there's some secret methodology of training that allows you to just be ninety-eight percent all the time or something or if there is i don't know what it is necessarily Um, but so that's like one of the more tangible differences that actually jumps to mind for me that i think people don't always think about because i think in some ways people look at professionals and just think almost the opposite that it must be so specialized and so optimized and i think that's true when you hear about like you know the rigoberto rams targeting the tour de france or like caleb Ewan targeting sprints or something like that right um these guys are training in a specialized way for a certain day but then there's 29 other guys in the team or whatever that are like working to make that happen
1: um so it's almost like there's like maybe five percent on the team that gets to i guess splurge and specialize within a focus um and the rest is
0: it's probably more like twenty percent okay and i mean everyone's going to have their focus of like what and even like you know you're going to have the group that even if their program changes it's going to change within the classics or it's going to change within the stage races so it's like it's not like you have no idea where you should be aiming, kind of mm-hmm. um but yeah that's that's one thing um okay, I guess another thing is just like these guys if they do it right, they have a lot of time to recover, which means they can handle a bit more training load um so I think that's one difference of like sometimes people look at it and think, oh, I could." I could never handle that kind of training load but some of it's also just life of like you could train differently if all you had to do after training was sit on the couch um but that's one thing i really try and remind these guys of that like being at the world tour level isn't just about doing the training at the world tour level it's also about doing the recovery at the world tour level
1: Mm -hmm. have you found that that has changed with time like that the approach to recovery is more uh all-inclusive or it's more a a bigger thing that people focus on now
0: i think so i mean i I think it's probably more active you know just because like sports science progresses like maybe 20 or 30 years ago recovery was basically about just sitting on the couch yeah but now i think there's like you know nutrition science is so advanced or even physiotherapy is so advanced that i mean top-level athletes are seeking out more or less a lot of help in their recovery. Like, it's not just do the ride and then sit on the couch. It's, well, did you do the ride and then eat the right thing, and then did you uh, go get the massage or this or that, you know?
1: Do you, as a coach, find that you're bugging the athletes more about protocols like that or um, suggesting things for that?
0: I think that's one where it depends on the i mean it depends on the person but i think it depends on a very like broad level on the experience level like it's something that the younger pros might not realize how seriously they need to take it whereas the older pros kind of just get it you know like they've been they've kind of had some of these messages drilled into their heads for six seven eight years now and like it's just second nature so like you see you see some pros doing stuff that's just second nature to them um that like other pros would almost never think to do you
1: know so that kind of reminds me of another topic i wanted to chat with you about which is cultures and how that affects things within the team um so like obviously a world tour program has a lot of different cultures coming into play Mm -hmm. um like how does the team juggle that how does the team approach that um yeah
0: i mean one thing that like has really impressed me this year and it's just it's been cool to just see is like so we have seven sport directors Mm -hmm. and amongst them one they span quite a few cultures you know we have a belgian we have a dane uh we have a our head director is kind of a Brit slash a Finn Finland, you could say. We have a German. We have an Italian. We have a Spaniard. Uh, you know, our European general manager is from New Zealand. Uh, Our team overall manager is American. Um, so we have a lot of cultural perspective amongst the staff, and so I think that there's not really a rider background that we don't have someone in a like a sort of director type role that doesn't have a similar background or understanding or experience with and then also language wise this group is just really impressive like most of the sport directors speak three four five languages so like their ability to communicate and relate with someone from Colombia but also Italy but also America is really good and I think that I mean there's different cultures and personalities everywhere, but I think on a simple level, just being able to communicate is massive because if someone feels comfortable in an athlete's shoe and like they can communicate with the people around them that they sort of know are there to help them, then you're gonna learn what they need kind of um so I actually think the team is quite well equipped uh to handle that kind of multicultural perspective
1: yeah i would think that would be huge is that something that you think was purposeful they tried to bring yeah uh, i I think so i think
0: definitely because i think you see other teams especially smaller division teams where like if it's an italian second division team they might have only italian directors and that makes it a lot harder for like I don't know, a Canadian to ride for that team. Like, (laughs) not because they have any issue with Canadians, but, like, at some point, if the Canadian doesn't know Italian and isn't Italian, and they don't, you know, it just is, it's just tough.
1: Yeah, yeah. Is that something you've been working on as well? Like, if you've been working on, you know, understanding different languages or different backgrounds and stuff like that?
0: Yeah, I mean, mainly Spanish for me. Because, one, we're living in Spain... But really the right thing, to, not the right thing, but to really do well here and, like, be respected by the locals, you want to speak Catalan. Right. Um, but, yeah, we we have quite a few Spanish-speaking writers in our team, so uh, I'm working on Spanish. Uh, I, wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm impressive.
1: Okay. I'll give you some time. And you're you you uh, you're in Girona, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Just wanted to touch on that. Yeah. Yeah, the interesting contrast between Catalan and and Spanish is, I thought was very interesting when I was there. Um, Yeah. (laughs) uh, So, that kind of covers the the culture differences between riders and um, sport directors and, but do you, I guess, on the, I guess, more smaller level, what about training philosophies and culture basis off of that, like how do you, do you coach differently based off Hmm. of culture?
0: I guess, I don't know if I would say I like to think I do, but I I guess I think I do, but I guess I, I feel like I think I coach differently on, I don't know if I would call it culture differences in America, but I guess I just think I coach differently with different athletes based on what their own personal beliefs are. And yeah. probably some of that is sort of driven culturally, based on where they grew up, racing, who their mentors were, what the people they pay attention to train like. Uh-huh. But some of it might just be their own. You know, they read. They're really into it. They read a lot about it. Whatever. You know. So I think that um, I work. I work with some athletes where. For them to be like actively thinking or putting input into their own training isn't really something they want to do. They're like, I work really hard every day and like I just want to do the training and be done with it. And like I have no problem with that. And then I have other athletes that like they have, they're really happy to work with a coach, but they also have a lot of ideas of their own. And Mm -hmm. like, so it's really important to, I don't know get those out there and speak with them and make sure that they feel good about what they're doing and that if they have ideas they want to try out, that they're not losing sleep at night because they're wondering how good they would be if they did this workout or whatever, you know? So on some level, maybe that's a cultural difference, but I also think it's just people.
1: Yeah, yeah. Do you think that it's more common on, I guess, the World Tour level for athletes to come to you with their own ideas or their own understanding of how they want to train and then vocalizing that or do you think I don't know
0: I think it's equal to on the lower level because I think it's the same like some guys are have a lot of experience of what they think works for them and really want to be involved and others are just like you know I'm uh, I trust you and just put it together and let's do it you know cool yeah Um, maybe the more older and more experienced a rider has They have a little bit more input or thought on what works for them. But I think sometimes it's a little bit less like that internally than you would think it is from the outside. At least Hmm. that's what I've been finding. Okay.
1: So with training athletes, um, do a majority of the athletes on EF have a coach that they're already working with? And then you're just kind of facilitating with that uh, coach or rider to help them the way you can.
0: Mm, no, it's it's a mix. I mean, we okay. have a good we have a good squad of team coaches on EF, so mm-hmm. uh, the riders are mostly coached by team coaches. Um, and then, but I mean, there's there's different team coaches, so it might be that I'm working with a rider in Girona that's working with a team coach that's based in Belgium, and I'm gonna help him do X, Y, and Z on a certain day or at a certain camp, but usually then we just try and communicate uh everyone together and kind of like give everyone the space to have input on the plan so that everyone feels good about what they're doing
1: cool and then you mentioned that you're like on the ground type coach in Girona is there does that mean that there are other coaches kind of spread throughout the the world to give riders support
0: in that way yeah yeah well hmm I guess not so much I mean we have coaches that are based in other places and riders that are based in other places, and they might they might get together to do some stuff. But we have nearly half our team as their European bases in Gerona, and our service courses in Gerona. So, kind of the level of support we're providing on the ground in Gerona, we're we're not really providing elsewhere. I would say more. Of the sentiment is that like we're building a bit of a team base around Gerona.
1: Cool. Cool. Um, All right. So going into training camps, um, which you obviously spend a decent amount of time uh, facilitating and and, uh, orchestrating. So how many of these do you you tend to do with the with the team every year? And
0: Mm. I mean, it's been a weird year. And it's my first year working with the team. So it's a bit tough. But um, so far this year, if we count i guess if we say twenty twenty season so starting kind of in like december november Mm -hmm. i've done i've done seven camps um... in some form of about one week to one to two i've done seven times one to two week camps so far this year Um, some of those have been pretty yeah, we we kind of have different forms. Whether, for all the way from like, almost maybe you wouldn't call it a camp, but like everybody's staying in their own place and we're just meeting for training every day for a week or something, um, to full on, we've all gone not to our home, staying at a hotel, uh, this and that.
1: What do you think the I guess the main if you think of a training camp what do you think of the purpose of it is?
0: Mm, That's something I've spent a lot of time doing or -hmm. thinking about because I think some I think a lot of people think you know you should just do camps and it's important to train together as a team but I feel like when I was coming up uh, as an athlete I remember knowing a lot of athletes at the professional level that actually hated going to training camps because they would say, oh I hate going to training camps I like have to do I have to do the team training and not my coaches training and like I just go to these camps and I get slower and and this and that and so I feel like that's actually really shaped my thinking of like well the team puts a lot of effort into training camps whether it be money or staff or time or thinking or whatever so it kind of sucks if like you put all this effort into a training camp and then it turns out on the other side of that the riders are basically feel like they're getting slower from it yeah um so like My, like, guiding philosophy is that if we have a camp, riders should come to that camp for a specific reason, because they're accomplishing something they couldn't accomplish just at home. Because all these guys travel so much for racing that, um, if they don't need to be away from home, they shouldn't. So, um... I guess there's that abstract idea behind every camp we do, hopefully, that it should be a for, for a specific reason that enhances their training, but then that can that can totally vary from it can be, well, now, okay, we're doing motor pacing, or we're doing these efforts that you know, at home you're doing all these intervals alone based on your power meter and a timer or whatever. And now we're doing efforts that realistically you couldn't do at home because we're doing them with like a group dynamic and it relies on being with other people. um Or it's as simple as we're at altitude and at home you wouldn't be at altitude or whatever. So it can be anything, it can be any reason. But I think any camp we do, we try and have a reason behind. What the athlete's getting out of it, and then a lot of the camps we do we'll do some camps every year that are not optional, you know, for example, before the tour uh that was really a medically driven camp, or like in the winter, we'll have a camp that has a lot of obligation and people need to come, and it's training, but it's also you know working with the sponsors and learning about new material and this and that mm-hmm. um, but camps that we do beyond that. I actually really like to make them optional and tell the athletes this is this is my idea behind this camp and if that's something that you feel would improve your training process come to the camp if you feel it wouldn't then there's no obligation to come to the camp because then it also really contributes to a positive environment in the camp because yep. yeah. then you don't end up with people feeling oh yeah like I wish I wasn't at this camp this and that to me, that's a really powerful thing.
1: Yeah, they chose to be there. It mm-hmm. makes a big difference. Yeah. So the, what, I guess, how much time and effort do you have to put into planning one of these things?
0: Hmm, depends on the camp. I mean, if we're doing a camp where, again, I, I don't know if you would call them camps or, I mean, they're different terms, I guess. Like, in my head, I almost call them supported training. But, for example, mm-hmm. like, I did a fair amount of one-week camps. in Andorra at Altitude earlier this year um, where everyone was staying at their own place, making their own food. I was just going up and running the camp and saying, we're meeting this time every day. We're doing this route. We're doing this workout and doing it for a week. Other than the time on the ground, those camps aren't crazy hard. I mean, they're hard, but the more of them you do, the easier they get so there's a big difference for me if it's a camp in a place I've been before versus a camp that's new because there's a lot of small details that end up making a big difference you know like when you're planning the route you know do you know like the little small road that you should take that's only 700 meters long but it like keeps you from spending 10 minutes like trying to cross some town because like you knew that you should just go here or there, you know, like small stuff that actually makes a big difference on the rider level. Um, So yeah, they're, they're hard. I mean, they're long days when I'm at the camp and I try and put a lot of thought into them, but it's also pretty, I guess I would say it's time consuming, but straightforward. It doesn't feel like guesswork.
1: So let's say for example, um, I'm sure you get this question quite often but like the use of altitude camps so what a how often do you guys tend to implement that and what do you see the use of altitude camps altitude mm. camps being
0: yeah i think with that we definitely try and work with like um it depends a lot who the rider is what their program is where they're gonna like where on the calendar they're gonna be at altitude in relation to when the race is you mm-hmm. know some some athletes really don't seem to struggle at altitude and maybe it's uh they can actually do altitude camps and have great effect pretty quickly because they don't have a big detriment in the first 4 to 5 days so they can go for a relatively short altitude camp and get a lot of boost out of it because they can keep a pretty high training quality the whole time okay. um, for other athletes maybe it really needs to be thought about if it's worth it on an in-depth level because maybe They actually really they they show a benefit from altitude, but they also really struggle uh, at first. So they really need to take it easy while they're there. So they really need to have the time to be there for three weeks or something, you know. Yeah. Um, or maybe they respond to it in a way that they get really strong, but they actually don't get that kind of race fast from it, and it doesn't really actually suit the races they're doing. So why actually go to altitude? So. Yeah, i I think we I think we think about it, Um, and I think a lot of the riders we work with have, you know, maybe if they're not in their first, second, or third, maybe if they're in their first, second, or third year pro, it's something they're still learning about themselves. But a lot of the older pros have a lot of experience with it and have a pretty clear thought on how they think it helps them and when the timing of it. And so, it actually makes it relatively straightforward to work with.
1: Cool. that's something that you guys primarily get over time and experience with these athletes is figuring out how they respond to altitude yeah
0: yeah exactly but even if it's their first year in our team like if they've been a professional for six or seven years they might have a pretty good handle or like a historical body of data um both from blood work and just training files at altitude and then race files off the back of altitude that can give a pretty quick answer of if it's something to consider in a certain time or not.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's super interesting because a lot of athletes just make the assumption that altitude and time at altitude will always benefit you. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, I totally agree. There's a lot of that, that like if you can do an altitude camp, of course you should.
1: <laughs> not always. Um, okay, so then what about the the most recent camp you did? So the tour prep camp, and then how have, has camps been affected by covid like with the whole um i guess creating a bubble kind of thing
0: i mean camps have been super affected i guess in the same way that races have been affected because we kind of look at camps as a race event um and say here's our protocol from our doctors of what we need to do to stay safe and healthy and that encompasses covid testing but also you know uh hand sanitizer, masks, wearing gloves when preparing bottles, riders not reaching into the cooler to grab their own bottles, but one person being designated to hand them out, um, or whatever, you know, riders all having their own room rather than sharing rooms. Um, So there's a lot of, like, extra thought that goes into it. Um, And then... Sorry, what was the other part of it?
1: <laughs> that's all right. Do you feel like riders have, like, a- adapted to that new protocol quickly? Or is that something mm. that's kind of taken time? Because that's a lot of little things that people are probably just yeah. used to doing.
0: That's the thing. I think there's a lot of second nature stuff that people just don't even think about Yeah. Um, and catch themselves. But that's the beauty of it being a team is, like, you've got a lot of people thinking about it. So, like, sure. if two people forget about it, maybe four people don't and, like, So I think it's gone pretty smoothly. And I think at this point, it's been a big change, but at the same time, it's occurred relatively slowly because we had this whole lockdown and holding period before even returning to racing. So I think everyone's had plenty of time to wrap their mind around the general idea that things are going to be very different. And so I don't... I I mean, I think people are frustrated in the sense that no one likes the situation. (laughs) But I don't see a lot of frustration between, like, riders and staff or whatever where you know everyone just accepts that this is how it's got to be right and it's kind of a pain sometimes but no one's blaming anyone really
1: yeah yeah and I think at least with the riders that I've spoken to at the highest level they are just so appreciative of being able to race again that they that's like well this is what we have to do then it's (laughs) worth it so of course I'll do it yeah um which is yeah, healthy and and cool to see. Um, so, yeah, I guess like the the most recent training camp leading into the tour, what was what was that like, and what was the focus?
0: Mm. Yeah, so the focus was twofold. One to just like any other year, go to the tour as prepared and fit as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, like when we do a training camp, the riders can just have access to some things that they wouldn't have at home, like not having to cook for themselves daily, having massage daily um you know having company from the teammates daily um so that's really valuable no matter the year and then the second part was just making sure everyone stays healthy and in a good way uh given the covid situation prior to the tour so those were the driving reasons um yeah
1: okay did uh i guess with this year being the way it was and kind of like the low amount of race days, what was the, like, was that training camp even more important going into the tour then because of that?
0: Mm, I think probably a little bit. Um, I mean, and our team has raced less than a lot of other teams Hmm. because our team's chosen, we've taken a relatively conservative, but I mean, personally, I think good, approach to the COVID situation and we're only doing world tour racing. So we're not doing any of these uh, point one or point hc level races that a lot of the other teams have done so we're not having as many race days to get ready for the tour like a lot of the gc riders i think we saw ride uh... route de sud plus tour de lane plus the dauphiné and then rest and go to the tour Um yeah. wow. whereas we've done just the dauphiné and then going to the tour uh... for most of our riders or doing some racing in italy world tour races and then going to the tour um, so, in some ways, yeah, maybe the camp's a bit more important uh because we're having a little bit less race days, so I think there's a ton of val- i think when you have less race days, you have a little bit less time of just doing sort of some of those group dynamic type exercises where when you're doing intervals alone or whatever, you can get really fit, but there's still this underlying difference of you know exactly when it's over because your coach said it was 10 minutes right and you're exactly in control of how hard you push because if you hurt if yeah your coach might have said 350 watts but if you're hurting a little you back off 10 watts less and nothing happens whereas right. if you're in a race and you need to be at that uh wattage to be on the wheel you can back off 10 watts less but then you're not in the group anymore so you don't actually really have much of a choice over it um so just on a simple level, being able to do efforts where you're on someone else's wheel and feeling some of these stresses, I think there's a big value. Um, so we were able to accomplish some of that at the camp. Plus, just little stuff like we, you know, rent a scooter and uh, do some motor pacing. Uh, we're able to stay, have a few riders up at altitude to sleep high and uh, spend a little few more days up at altitude and other riders were able to stay low. Um, Hmm. because maybe being at altitude wasn't the best for them in that lead-in. So, yeah, I think we were able to add something to the rider's process that went beyond just the COVID measures.
1: Do you feel like you've uh, implemented stuff more this year than years past to Offset not having that, like, race sharpness or that following-the-wheel feel?
0: Hmm... Yes and no. I mean, I think we. I mean, in Girona, for example, we've done a good amount of motor pacing with the guys here, but that's not that different from a normal year. Like guys are always trying to kind of get that kind of work in, Um, and I think in in some ways we've almost seen the opposite effect. That like a lot of guys have started the season or restarted the season after months of not racing and done really well. so i mean maybe something that comes out of this is that some of that mindset that you need 40 days of racing before you can ever be fit is just a bit antiquated you know but i think we've also seen that already in the past few years with plenty of good riders racing less and doing i don't know longer periods of training and then a race and then a long period of training and then a race um so i don't know if we've done anything differently but maybe it's more just that we'll take something
1: out of it Hmm. do you find that these riders are more i guess mentally fresh because of it or do you think covid actually kind of
0: yeah i think some of them maybe but i think there's everyone on people are on every end of the spectrum because it's also been super on one hand they haven't been racing but on the other hand there's been a lot of anxiety about not knowing what the race calendar has been like plenty of them never took any sort of off-period or off-season because they didn't actually know when the restart was going to be until it was to the point where like the restart was pretty close so then it was too late to take a break and be ready for the restart so yeah i think it's some guys maybe are mentally fresh and have gained a little something and having some more time to prepare Um, i think for a lot of people it's been it's had plenty of challenges of its own <laughs>
1: Yeah, I would say that applies to the masses, definitely. Um, Okay, so another thing I wanted to pick your brain on um, is actually identifying and developing talent. So that side of um, both within what you do within your own coaching and then also within what you do for the team. Um, So I guess, you know, and you've done, I would imagine, a decent amount of this within kind of like the national team focus as well. Um, But what do you look for when you're identifying talent and how do you even start with that
0: yeah i think identifying talent is tough because in my opinion a lot of what equates to talent that will ultimately become exciting is how much room someone has to improve Mm -hmm. and that's that's really tough because there's plenty of athletes that look really that that are really talented but they're, they're performing really well at a certain time point But if they're performing relatively high on sort of their own curve of how good they might be, um, then maybe they're not a huge talent with a ton of room to improve and vice versa. There's plenty of athletes that don't appear super impressive, maybe in the junior ranks, but they have a lot of room to improve. Um, so some of the stuff I try and look for is just, uh, what are they, what are they good at? And I, I try and guess a little bit on like what they're good at. Um, and, how that might translate down the line if if someone is seems a little bit underdeveloped for their age category um and is performing pretty well uh that's that's a big marker for me for talent um if someone has a lot of speed um like they're a really good sprinter or something like that um but uh they struggle with endurance I actually think that's also a big marker for talent because that speed aspect is probably a little bit less trainable but mm-hmm. ultimately a big impact in winning races and then the endurance can can if they're, if they're into it and they want to put in the work the endurance is pretty trainable and can come with time and age and maturity yeah. um, so I guess I look for some things that I think are a bit physical but also a bit like mental in their excitement and engagement in the sport yeah
1: the you mentioned underdeveloped um, for their age category what do you mean by underdeveloped
0: yeah I guess that's a tricky one I don't want to say anything that sounds wrong um but I mean if someone's 16 and has facial hair and is doing things that are really impressive in relation to their competition group I think I'd carry it with a little bit less weight than the guy that, you know, can't grow facial hair and is 16 but looks 14 or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. and okay. I mean, that might that, that might be pretty arbitrary. Yeah. But to me, sometimes that speaks to how much room they have to improve, you know? There can be an 18, 19-year-old that's really good but isn't going to be that much better by the time they're 22, and there can be an 18, 19-year-old that's decent. Um, Responds to training really well, seems to be improving every year, but isn't one of the top five people you would pick at a race on that day, but in three or four years, they might be really good um hmm. so I kind of try and think about it both in how good someone is at a moment and how good maybe they could be a few years down the line
1: interesting so if you notice somebody, is that because you like went to the race then Saw them perform in a certain way, and then felt that they had a decent amount to still improve on. Um, and then, how do you how do you decide that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we just have so much. There's so much data available yeah. these days. Yeah. You know that without going to a race, you can you can uh, I don't know see photos of it, and but you can also talk to people and see what they thought. So I mean, I guess i re- I've benefited a lot from just hearing what other people have to think and like trusting their opinions and gambling on it a little bit and getting a bit lucky but I mean also when I was working with USA Cycling a lot of times with the key athletes that are kind of in that development pool um they're all maybe USA Cycling is monitoring all of their training so you're not just going off of the results on the page but also maybe what you see them doing and training and then you get to Have a little bit better feel of what their strengths and weaknesses are, or are they doing really well off of a really low amount of training? So maybe there's some low-hanging fruit, Hmm. or are they like training nearly like a professional, Um, which isn't always bad. Like that, you know, the takeaway from that can be that they tolerate training load really well, and that can set them up for success in the older categories um but it can also mean that maybe they have a little bit less low-hanging fruit to improve on
1: right more room to yeah. work with yeah and then do you uh, i would assume that you would oftentimes see athletes where you see the, what they're able to do in training and then kind of see all right well if they were able to accomplish that in a race setting environment or if they were able to yeah yeah improve uh, racecraft
0: i think that's a really interesting one that i've like noticed with quite a few U23s, like a lot of times they take a physical jump a season before they take a results jump hmm, because almost it seems like, and then they'll take a results jump the next year without having taken a big physical jump. So a lot of times the where you would expect to see the physical jump because you saw it on the results page, it hasn't actually occurred. Oh, but they had that power kind of a year ago, but with that power they were able to like learn what that part of the race looked like and make some mistakes or or maybe under fuel and realize how they needed to the fuel to race four hours because before they were always getting dropped at two and a half hours anyway and it didn't really matter or something like that um, and then the next year you can see the rate the the results but then you look in the training files or whatever and yourself like, oh they're not they're not doing any more power than they were doing the year before but clearly they're doing something different with it
1: yeah figured out how to use it yeah Hmm. Hmm. how about like the emotional side or maturity side of Hmm. uh, development sure
0: i mean i think that's massive especially the higher i mean i think it's massive at any level but i think the higher up the ranks you go like there's a there's a big difference between going to a race that's a three-hour drive away and going with your family compared to, like, getting on a plane and going somewhere for six weeks. Um, so I think it takes some takes some time to, like, get over some of that uh, new stimulus yeah. and stressors before what you might be physically capable of is going to shine through.
1: Do you feel like, uh, I guess, on the top level of the sport – that World Tour teams will keep an eye on particular riders and then let them develop elsewhere um, before kind of, like, shepherding them into the program? Or do you feel like Mm, that's less common?
0: I think every team has their own philosophy. Because I think Mm. you're seeing some teams that are signing riders that haven't even finished the juniors. So, (laughs) to me, without wanting to sound, like, too cynical or something, that's kind of the opposite of letting them develop elsewhere and then shepherd right. them into their program. But then I think yeah, other teams you do see that where like they might pick up rather than signing a lot of 22s and 23-year-olds or even younger, they might sign a lot of 26 and 27-year-olds that are like more known quantities and and maybe those guys have less room to improve and they're not gonna um they're not signing them with the idea of oh, he's going to come into our program and in 2-3 years time be really good. It's more that, ah, we know what this person's capable of and we have a really clear idea of how we could use that in this team sort of strategically. And uh, that's why we want to work with this rider. So I think just different teams have different philosophies.
1: Yeah, it seems like that's been changing more and more where certain teams have more of a drastic approach and others do not.
0: (laughs) I think it probably also just depends on, I think every team will also change within their team based on right. the riders they have and like the budget they have and what they're what they're going after. I mean it's kind of like basketball too, right? Um or like any draft-based sport of like yeah. if you haven't had the best season and you have early round draft picks, you're you're shooting on you're like going for talent. Um if you're one of the best teams in the league, you're trying to optimize the team you have.
1: Huh. And then you could I guess not waste money, but I guess like gamble a little bit more and, and uh, back other things. Yeah, I like that point. Um, All right, so you already touched on how many uh, performance directors you have on the team. Um, But what about other staff members? Um, So like, do you guys uh, employ or use personal trainers or um, any sort of strength coach?
0: Yeah, we do have a strength and conditioning coach. I mean, so we have like physiotherapists and chiropractors, all of whom have a bit of their own, like, I guess you wouldn't call it strength, but like the same Mm -hmm. way if you worked with a normal physical therapist. Like, you might go and they might give you sort of a strength-based exercise to work a little bit on a targeted weakness. But then we also do have a proper like strength and conditioning coach we work with that um, they might overlap a lot with our physios and our kairos to like learn an athlete's weaknesses and try and work at them but they're also there just to construct a strength program for an athlete Um, based on that athlete's needs also what they have access to in terms of a gym and equipment and then different phases and different times of year so um, yeah that's been pretty cool.
1: But what about like nutritionists um, or sports psychologists? So we
0: don't have any uh sports psychologists on staff okay. um we do have nutritionists on staff we do have uh medical doctors um yeah
1: okay Have you found that uh, you've seen more of your athletes using sports psychologists this year?
0: mm yes and no uh i mean i, I some athletes work with sports psychologists and then then I think a lot of athletes. I think all athletes employ sports psychology on some level. I think okay. it's impossible not to. But I think that, you know, a lot of the athletes have a really close relationship with the sport director or their trainer. And um, those people are obviously not professionally trained as sports psychologists, but they definitely use them as a sounding board and someone that they can. Uh, speak with about more than just the sport or things that they might be challenged with um, or whatever so i guess i'm a little bit hesitant to say something like that because i'm a big believer in the profession of sports psychology and have recommended different sports psychologists or even just exploring the field in general to a lot of athletes i've worked with so i don't want it to come across as saying uh, we don't work with sports psychologists, but our trainers and our sport directors are sports psychologists because I definitely don't feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I do find a lot of our athletes have a close relationship in that way. And uh, it goes beyond just simply their, their workouts or uh, tactics in the race from the sport director or what yeah. have you.
1: Yeah, yeah, I definitely get that. Yeah, it's, I think it's becoming more popular, more common to see people working with a, I guess, professional sports psychologist. Exactly, like having that there. as
0: someone that's in their, like, support team, you know, their right. physical therapist, their doctor, their nutritionist, right. their trainer, their sports psychologist, sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, and then, um, I guess, like, is there any other big staff member that comes to mind that, um, I guess, EF implements that um, mm. you hadn't thought of? Trainers, that...
0: sport directors, chiropractors, physiotherapists, nutritionists, doctors. I mean, the big staff members are, like, also the ones that they, they make a really big difference with the riders. Is just the soigneurs and the mm-hmm. mechanics because, like, in a lot of ways, they're they're the ones that interact with the athletes the most, or, like, sometimes, like, the and in the most tense moments, you know, right after a race when emotions are really high and the riders just cross the finish line, or, like, you know, when a rider crashes and they're picking themselves up off the ground, usually the mechanic's the first one to them. Um, so, I mean, those are people that are part of our support staff that are super important, not just from a technical aspect, but also in, you know, their personality, their demeanor, their culture, um, whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was hugely rel- something I relied on big time. Um, uh, okay. So the last couple things I wanted to get into is, you know, obviously we're a couple stages into the tour. Um, how do you, how do you feel it's going? What are your thoughts now that you're like, kind of a part of, um, a team that is, is doing the tour?
0: Hmm. Well, uh, we're leading the team GC, so that's going pretty well. pretty decent. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, I think it just shows that we have a deep team, a strong team, uh, especially mm-hmm. because it'd be one thing if it'd just been flat stages, then Team GC can be a bit, not random, but, you know, who's, who's been up there in the sprints, who's crossing the line in what order. But, I mean, it's only, whatever, five days in, but it's already been really physical. Uh, we've had, like, three really physical stages um, with really proper climbing. Uh so I think it feels it's pretty confident inspiring to be leading the team GC. Yeah, definitely. Um and it's something I know is important to the team. Uh but I think from the tour as a whole, we're also just seeing that the the Tour field is super deep, you yeah. know? Um without wanting to give too much away, like the pace they did up the final climb yesterday was I mean, it was fast, like really proper, you know? Um And I think it's almost one of those things where when you look at the results, you would think, ah, you know, it was a group of nearly 20 guys. Uh, You know, it had an uphill finish, but it wasn't super hard. But then when you look at the file, it was, oh, wow, this was really proper fast climbing. And then also just when you look at the names. So like there's six, I have it pulled up in front of me. There's 16 guys that finished on the same time. And I think that. Every one of those names, if someone told you, oh, okay, this guy's going to be on the podium in Paris, you wouldn't think, oh, that's outlandish, mm-hmm. you know? 16th was Bardet, who's been top three in the tour, and 1st was Roglic, who's uh, won the Vuelta and been top three in other grand tours mm-hmm. uh, and was has been top five in the tour. and You know, it's like, I don't know the stats, but I, I think that... Everyone in this group has been top three in a grand tour. So I think the tour this year is probably more stacked than it's ever been for the simple reason that you probably saw a lot of people that maybe wouldn't have focused on the tour. But now, given the year and kind of the break and the restart and the importance of like a good showing to sponsors, I think you're going to have one of the most stacked tours of all time, you know?
1: Cool. So I think yep. we might
0: see some times almost where. I don't know if I would say the tour will look boring, but I wonder if there will be times where on TV it almost looks not that hard. Like, for example, the second stage was interesting. You had, like, 30 guys going over the cold ez. Right. Ah, like, oh, right. you know, it's a group of 30 or whatever. It's not that hard. or It's it's hard, but, it, you know, they're not killing it. But then, like, you look at the file or you look at the names of the people in that group, and it's super select. It's right. just that they're not usually all in one place.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I thought yesterday's stage was really interesting because it was... uh, What was yesterday's stage? Would that be stage three? Is that right? Uh, Four. Four, four. So yesterday was... I thought was really interesting because you saw... I mean, like, on paper, I thought it was very similar. We're like, oh, man, they're kind of flying up this thing. It must not be too crazy. And then you have a pretty large, decently large group. But then when you see... um, Well, one, I I know Sep and you know Sep's pretty well, so, like, just seeing his face, you know how hard it is. And then, two... (laughs) um when he pulled off when the attack went no one really moved and uh I think that in itself kind of shows the pace that was going into that climb that people didn't have bullets to just spend there
0: yeah Um, yeah I think that's I think that's a good way of putting it like the pace I think was pretty close to the pace someone would ride up it in a max time trial like yeah. there wasn't a lot of tactical element to it right it was just totally pinned and then you get to the point where you are close enough you can sprint to the line
1: right <laughs> yeah i think that i mean correct me if i'm wrong but this tour seems to be very open which mm-hmm. is nice on the on the front that you're right like for i think the first time in a very long time a very big pool of people can do very well and um it's not like oh well they'll lose a ton of time in time trials or they'll lose a ton of time on this day it's it i mean you never know what will happen but um definitely adds a very cool element to the race that i think is a good refresh uh, yeah i
0: I think it should be a really interesting tour i mean yeah i think it should be really interesting it's one of the hilliest tours ever and uh really deep fields and uh some of the teams that have been super strong and dominant in the past, it's hard to tell where they're at. Other teams are coming forward, but at the same time, they're not totally proven in that capacity. And yeah, it should be uh, should be an open tour. You've got a uh, you've got this Quintana factor who seems to be kind of on a, a second wave. Yeah. Uh, so.
1: Yeah. yeah, so on the coaching side, do you like now that the. The guys have been through a couple stages um how's everyone's doing was have have people been kind of like shocked at the first couple of days or are they like kind of in a good place hmm. and in a good spirit
0: i think our team's in a good spirit you know cool. but i i would hesitate to say too much of course or like like i know or no no i mean i would hesitate to make it sound like i know too much because the truth is i think my job has been a lot of just trying to get people to the tour ready to go mentally and physically and ready to do the race and then when the race starts you know if people have something they want to chat about we're here uh... the trainers but also like that's really where once the race starts the coaches are the sport directors like not just from a tactical standpoint but also just working with the riders and managing expectations and doing all of that Um, And we might work together with the sport directors Uh, Every day or whatever, like yesterday, uh, myself and uh, the head of performance had some messages with our head sport director, Charlie, uh, talking about some of our expectations for how the pace might go on the final climb and what that could mean for a breakaway or whatever. But then our sport directors are really on it with uh, working with the riders on the ground. And in a lot of ways, I think the less voices an athlete has in their ear, once the pressure actually starts at the race, the better, you know? Like right, no, totally. Sometimes it's just, like, keep it simple and focus on the race, and, yeah, I think that can be underrated sometimes.
1: Yeah, well, that's cool. It's cool to know the process on that front. Is that something, do you wish to do more directing again someday?
0: Um, Without wanting to sound too bad, um, No. I, I hope to not do any directing.
1: Okay, that's fair. I mean, I, I don't. That's fair. I don't,
0: I don't like. I, I've had some really great times directing and some really good memories, but it's not my. Uh, it's not my passion at the end of the day, and it's also not really what I think I'm. I guess I just don't think I'm that good at it. Okay, um, that's fair. And I like. I don't like doing stuff I'm not that good at necessarily.
1: <laughs> Who does? Yeah. Um, all right, final question for you, just to. Um, push it a little bit what um since so since starting your job with ef what would you say is the biggest thing you've learned or the biggest change in how you coach um Hmm.
0: i mean some of it might just be a product of this year but i think the biggest thing i've learned and i'm trying to continue to learn is to like know when to do nothing like Hmm. when to just wait and see what's going to happen whether it be from an athlete Doing some training, um, or from how a season's gonna play out, or what so- or what information someone else might bring forward. But basically, just to know when to wait, and at some point, if you wait, you're gonna be able to make a better decision, rather than like being so afraid of being wrong or going the wrong direction that you don't actually let all the information get on the table and you change track too many times. Um, I I think that might come off a bit as like sounding like it's all about this year and COVID, but I also just think that's something that like I've really like people that I really respect at this team, I think are really good at doing that. Um, And that's something that I think I can be better at. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's a huge lesson. Yeah. That's, very well put. All right. Well, thanks, Nate. Thank you very yeah, much for thanks. the time and, and everything. Um, really appreciate it. Um, yeah. Good luck with everything. But All right. We will talk another time.
0: Yeah. Thanks a lot, Isaiah.
1: Thanks again for listening to my chat with Nate. Insightful guy and always has plenty of top-level work being done. Next episode, we are actually going back to the roundtable format I got some really good um, reviews on doing that style, so I'm going back to it. Um, So stay tuned, as it's a good episode. But until next time, everyone, stay safe and keep finding your edge.